0: to Philippians chapter 2. And we are going to be in verses 14 to 18 tonight. Philippians 2, 14 to 18. Let me read it for us, and then let me pray. So this is Philippians 2, starting in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray together. Father, as we turn to your word now, um, we trust that as you say in your word, that your word does the work, that it doesn't return to you uh, without having accomplished its purposes. And we know that one of those purposes is to make us more like Christ. And so as we listen to your word now, God, we we pray that you would do that, that you would use the preaching of your word uh, to make us more like Christ. Pray this all in Christ's name, amen. Well, in his book, Games People Play, uh, there is a psychiatrist named Eric Bernd, uh, who describes this thing that he calls the yes-but communication pattern, okay, yes-but communication pattern. First, one person states a problem. Next, the other person responds by offering suggestions, possible solutions for how to solve it, and to that, the first person then responds, yeah but and proceeds to shut down any solutions that are offered and maybe you know someone like that maybe you are that kind of person the yes but kind of person um, they're not really looking to solve their problem right they're just looking to complain they just want to be heard uh, they just want to get airtime to kind of express their grievances and burn calls them uh, the term help rejecting complainers You know it's been a while uh, since we've been in philippians but last time we were, we were here, we looked at verses 12 to 13. And if you look up there real quick, let me read it. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So Paul says in those verses, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, in other words, work out your own salvation, take it seriously. And the gospel of grace, Paul teaches us in those verses, is not opposed to effort, right? It's not opposed to our activity in the Christian life. And if we think that those two things don't work together, then we we need to have, as Winston taught us last time, this greater understanding of what salvation entails. That salvation is not just referred to the moment in which you were saved from hell, but salvation is the entirety of your life that even now, God is saving you as well. And yet, from those two verses, we learn that that doesn't negate God working in us, right? We work out our salvation, and God works in us. We work, and God works. Okay, live out the Christian life. Work out your own salvation. And if I were to ask you now, what does that look like practically? Okay, what, is, what does it mean to work out your salvation? What would you say? Like, if that were the main point of the sermon, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling— what would you give for application? How would you follow up Paul's really general command? Would you say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling by reading your Bible every day? Or would you say, uh, work out your own salvation by praying without ceasing, by preaching the gospel, uh, by evangelizing, by being part of a local church? What would you say? Well, as we arrive at our passage tonight, it's a bit surprising, I think, how Paul follows up what he just said in verses 12 to 13. And he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And the first specific application that he gives is what? Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And yet, not only is Paul's command uh, somewhat unexpected, right? It, it's not the first thing we would uh, expect to hear following that gigantic statement that Paul just made. But the more you think about it, what Paul says seems like an impossible thing to do. And just think about your past week, All right, let alone maybe your drive here. How many times did you grumble in your heart? How many times did you complain this week? Either in, with your words or in your heart. Oh, why did it rain so much this week? Or how is this thing so expensive? Why are uh, people so terrible at merging on the freeway? Why is it so hot in here? Why is it so cold in here? Why must that person insist on talking on speakerphone? Why can't they just plug in, like, headphones or something? Why is this line moving so slowly? Why does this professor have to assign us so much lecture material? Where is my food? I ordered, like, 20 minutes ago. From traffic to long lines to service at restaurants to people, politicians, weather, Inefficiency, people at church, worship songs, um, having too much to do, busyness, right? Or having too little to do, being bored. We quite possibly complain about literally everything. One New York Times writer put it like this. This is the beauty of the time in which we live. Everything is terrible. No one is happy. And now we have more outlets than ever into which we can spew the litany of meaningless trespasses against us. There is more than ever to complain about, and also more reason than ever to believe your complaints might actually do something. Now, with all of that in mind, I think it is especially relevant, especially necessary for us to hear what Paul has to say. And the world has its opinions on complaining, um, and not all of them are untrue. Okay, like you, I did this this week a quick Google search complaining will turn up a dozen or dozens of psychology articles and they'll tell you that if you complain less you'll be a happier person I I totally could have told you that the world will teach you that no one likes to be around a complainer that is totally true but the world will also take complaining and it will call it something else it will call it uh, pet peeves or venting or getting something off your chest or advocating for something or even it will tell you that it is a god-given right That if you don't like something, you need to make your voice heard because that is what is going to affect change. Now, when it comes to the topic of complaining as believers, for us, we need to be letting God's word, rather than the world's wisdom, teach us and search us and examine our grumbling hearts. In fact, that's one of the main points that Paul is making in his passage. He says that living a life that is free of Grumbling of complaining is a testimony that we are distinct and we are different from the world. So we need to be looking to scripture. And specifically in this passage, this is our key idea uh, for tonight. We learn that a life free of complaining shines brightly the reality of God's work in our lives in a dark world. A life free of complaining shines brightly the reality of God's work in our lives in a dark world. Uh, I have three points for us. A lot of sub-points. Um, but first point is this. What the command, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. That's in verse 14. And we'll get to the reasons that Paul gives us to stop complaining in a bit. But I think first, it's important for us just to look at what Scripture says about complaining itself. Okay, uh, those two words there. First, grumbling. Um, grumbling literally means an utterance made in a low tone of voice. Okay, it's like... You guys know what that's like. It's whispering complaints. It's muttering under your breath. It's making negative comments about others behind their backs. Um, That's what Paul is referring to uh, by grumbling here. And and that other word disputing, um, other translations uh, use the word quarreling. Uh, It's similar to to grumbling. And it it describes this verbal exchange that takes place when conflicting ideas are expressed. Okay, so disputing kind of takes place Uh, against two people who have different opinions, who, who see things differently, and it's debating in ways that are divisive to the church. Now, both of these words, grumbling and disputing, deal with interpersonal conflict, that you grumble and you dispute with other people around you. And so Paul writes this to the Philippians, presumably because this was taking place in the church, that people were grumbling and they were disputing about and against one another. And throughout this letter, Uh, we've already seen Paul emphasize unity, right? He he talks about unity all throughout the letter. And later on uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, he actually mentions these two ladies by name. He tells them, hey, you two, like, get along, right? Be reconciled to one another. Learn to agree with each other. Uh, Later on in chapter 4, Paul is going to talk about learning contentment, which is, there's definitely contentment uh, underneath uh, grumbling. But for now, I think we can just define grumbling and disputing maybe broadly, as expressed discontentment. Expressed discontentment. Now, I don't, really, I don't think I really need to define it for you guys any more than that. Um, I think the hard part is not defining it, but convincing us from Scripture that it's something we need to take seriously. Right? That this is a real problem that we need to take seriously. Uh, look at what he says. He says, Do all things. do all things. It's the same phrase that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 10.31. That's a a famous verse. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. Okay, And, and when you think of that verse, you think of like every single thing in your life, right? From the smallest things to the biggest things. Do all of that for the glory of God. And in the same way, Paul says, do everything with the right attitude. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. So this is something active, right? That we're do. This is something we have to put into practice. So it is active and it's comprehensive. It says all things. Every dimension of your life needs to be done without grumbling or disputing. And yet, complaining for many of us is so easy to do and it's so difficult to stop doing and it is so subtle that we don't give much thought to it. And maybe some of you... Uh, even assume that because we all do it so often, that it's not all that bad. right? Everyone complains, and so like it's actually maybe okay. Now, if you were one of the original recipients of this letter, those words there, grumbling and disputing, would immediately take you back to the Old Testament. And they would uh, make you think, actually, of the story of Israel. More specifically, Paul uses those particular words because he wants us to think about uh, this specific story, the wilderness generation who had wandered in the desert. Okay, you can read about that uh, in Exodus chapters 15 to 17, um, also in Numbers chapter 14 to 17. And he wants to point us back to the example of Israel because the example of Israel in the wilderness and their grumbling shows us how serious this sin is. In fact, actually, uh, Paul actually uses Israel as an example for the same point elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 10. This is what he says in that passage, First Corinthians 10:10, 10, 10. He says, We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, so twice, he uses Israel as this example of don't grumble, because there are serious consequences to your grumbling. Now, we don't have time to look at all the passages um, because Israel grumbled a lot. But two things I want to point out about complaining from Exodus chapter 16. Why don't you turn there? Exodus chapter 16. First thing I want to point out from this passage is that uh, complaining forgets and distorts. Complaining forgets and distorts. In Exodus 14, Two chapters back, it is the account of God leading the Israelites across the Red Sea in their exodus from Pharaoh and slavery. Okay, this super miraculous God redeeming them, delivering them from their enemies, parting the Red Sea, allowing them to walk across on dry land. That's all in Exodus 14. Exodus uh, chapter 15, uh, Moses has this amazing song of praise in which he exalts God and in, in this uh, this crazy work of salvation. Chapter 16 takes place less than two months after all of that happened. Okay, and listen to how they talk. Verse two. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, "Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full? For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger." So. Just think about what they're saying for a second. They just told God, it would have been better if we just died in Egypt because there, like, we had it all. Life was good. We were feasting, meat pots, bread to the full. God, why did you bring us out into the wilderness? Moses, why did you lead us here? Or did you do that just to kill us with hunger? This is total. Revisionist history. These Israelites, they hadn't experienced pleasure and prosperity in Egypt. If you know their story, they were under the yoke of slavery, right? It was, life was hard for them. They were being oppressed. Moses hadn't led, in, hadn't led them out into the wilderness to die. No, God had redeemed them from their slavery in order to bring them into his promised land, the land that, that God said was flowing with milk and honey. So they got it all twisted. And the crazy thing is, if you read through these passages, God uh, actually grants the Israelites whatever they're complaining about. So first they complain about, uh, they say that the water is bitter. And so God grants them uh, sweet water. And so they start grumbling after that that uh, they're hungry. right? And so God, he rains down bread from heaven every single day. They don't have to work for it. God just rains down bread for them. And shortly after that, they they, start, they have all this bread around them, but they start grumbling that manna's boring, right? Like, we just eat manna all the time, manna, manna, manna. I'm, we're so bored. Where's the garlic? Where's the meat? We used to have all this garlic in Egypt, and so they start grumbling about the manna. And so we see that complaining forgets and distorts. It forgets and distorts. It is spiritual amnesia. It re- reimagines the past. It despises the good gifts that God has given you in the present. He has surrounded you with and ignores God's promises for the future. Second, complaining is ultimately against God. It says in Exodus 16, verse 2, that the whole congregation uh, grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Right, So they, they come to these two leaders, and they bring their complaints to him. But a few verses later, look at what Moses says in verse 8. He says, Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Not against us, but against the Lord. See, all grumbling is ultimately theological. And it is God-focused, God-directed. To complain about the weather to a friend or a coworker is to complain about the weather that God controls, and that he has ordained. To complain about this situation or circumstance in your life is to question and to disrespect God's authority and providence. It is to distrust God's kind and loving rule over your life. See, so when you complain about something, it is like telling God that this should not be happening in my life right now. That I should not be going through what I'm going through right now. We're telling God that he got it wrong. That we can rule our lives and this universe better than he can. In our complaining, we are saying that our kingdoms of self, these little kingdoms of self, are more important than his kingdom. And so let me ask you, what are those things that you tend to grumble about the most? What are those things that you tend to grumble about the most? Is it school, work, certain people in your life, busyness, boredom, not getting enough sleep, daily inconveniences of life like the weather, traffic, inefficiency, slow Wi-Fi? Maybe as you think about it now, you realize that you complain often about certain things, and it's like you don't even really mean to, right? Like. It's just a way to be funny or it's just a passing comment. I, I don't think I'm really all that upset about Mondays, but I complain about them all the time. Well, is that showing you something about your heart? Right? Is that something you actually need to deal with? Could, it, could that be revealing something about what matters most to you, whose kingdom you are really serving? Could your complaining be revealing to you areas of your life in which you have questioned God's kingdom because it goes against your own kingdom? I know so far uh, I've mostly been mentioning more kind of day to day, seemingly trivial things that we complain about. But maybe for you, the things that you tend to complain about are about the most are are a lot more significant than the weather, than traffic, than slow moving lines. Maybe what you complain about the most is uh, the imperfect family that God puts you in, or your singleness. Or where you are in life compared to all of your friends. Maybe uh, you complain about how God made you, uh, your personality, your, your body type, or the way that you look, or uh, maybe even uh, like a disability, a handicap that you have. Does, God, does Paul's command to do all things without grumbling or disputing mean that we can't talk about all of those things, even in a way that is raw and honest to God? Does Paul simply call us to plaster on a smile in whatever circumstance? No, I think in Scripture, we see that there is this biblical category for lamenting. There is a way that we can talk about our hardships uh, and bring our questions to him. You see that in Psalm, you see that in Job, uh, you see that in Lamentations. In fact, God invites our lamenting to him. But whereas grumbling and disputing come from this heart of pride where we are challenging God's role, biblical lament comes from this posture of humility. Lament takes place in the context of this personal and this intimate relationship with God as we speak to him. Okay, with God as we speak to him. And lament moves in a certain direction. Uh, Tremper Longman, Longman, he's a commentator, he says this, the general teaching of scripture is that a more mature level of suffering is to move from lament to confidence. Okay, so we're going somewhere, it's directional. So as you think about those things that you complain about the most, what does your complaining say about who God is? What does your complaining say about who God is? Have you forgotten God's promises in his word? Have you rejected uh, his goodness and his care? So that's the what. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why? Point number two. For the sake of your character and your witness. Okay, your character and your witness. You can flip back to Philippians 2, uh, verse 15. Paul says that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So uh, the big idea here in verse 15 is that living a life free... Free from complaining says something about who you are. Okay, it says something about who you are. It affirms your identity as children of God and it sets you apart from this world. And so we'll look at that in two parts. First, complaining and your character. A life free of complaining testifies to the reality of the gospel's work in your life. Now, as we consider these verses, I think it's interesting that after having commanded us to, Paul says, do all things. Right? But after that, he doesn't actually specify anything that we're supposed to do. He doesn't give us like an action item. As one commentator puts it, Paul does not outline a course of action, but he calls for a kind of action. That he does not specify a rule of life, but a sort of person. He focuses not on social involvement, but social contrast. In other words, as you look at verse 15, I hope you realize that Paul's descriptions here are getting you to consider your character. Your character. You see, our complaints aren't just words from our mouths, but they reveal the attitudes of our hearts. You can't separate what you say or something that you do from who you are. And complaining, I think, maybe more than uh, many, many of the other things that come out of our mouths, uh, maybe more than a lot of the things that we speak with others, complaining really, really reveals what's happening on the inside. Right? Why? Because complaining is automatic. You do it without thinking. And what comes out of your mouth when things don't go your way shows what you really care about and what kind of person you really are. So it shows something about your character, but let me say this, it works the other way around too. Okay, so complaining reveals our character, but also shapes our character. Complaining is not a freeing habit. Um, I, I think maybe we think that way, right? Like, I'm going to complain about this, and I just feel so much better. Like, it just feels lighter. But it's not a freeing habit. It's a forming habit. It's making you into a certain type of person. It forms our hearts to be even more aware of the ways that others wrong us. Uh, The more it forms our hearts to, uh, to be more aware of how something bothers us. And so Paul reminds us that the reality of the gospel constrains us, compels us to live lives, he says, that are blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Okay, that phrase there, um, blameless and innocent, it doesn't imply sinless perfection, okay? Paul is not saying you've got to live a sinless life, but it does mean that our lives should be above reproach, that there should be this sincerity and this purity to our lives, that the words that we say, the way that we live, needs to be different than that of the world. There shouldn't be anything that the world should hold against us. And if you look at verse 16, Paul even attaches this uh, eschatological significance to his command to stop complaining. Like, look at what he says. He says, uh, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. In other words, uh, the, the nature of their sacrifice to God, right, if their lives are a sacrifice to God, the nature of that sacrifice on that last day depends on their obedience to this command. So living out a life that is free of complaining is indispensable to the outworking of your salvation. I think another implication of why uh, Paul mentions the last day is that as believers, we know that's what we're looking forward to, right? Like maybe for you, uh, you are in a situation where the past was or is better than what you're going through right now. And that might be true of your situation, but as believers, we know that we are not looking to the past, we're not looking to the present, we are looking to the future. That the best is yet to come, that this is not all that there is. It's the coming day of Christ that enables us, as Paul says, back in chapter 1, to consider uh, dying as gain. And yet it is the coming day of Christ that also empowers us to live in the present without grumbling. We know that the best is yet to come. Second, complaining in your witness. Life free of complaining is a powerful testimony of the gospel to the lost. So Paul says that you are in the midst of a crooked and a twisted generation. And that phrase there, uh, crooked and twisted generation, it comes actually from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 32, verses 4 to 5. 32, 4 to 5. Uh, And in that passage, it actually describes Israel, the people of God, because of their rebellion against him. God, if you know the Old Testament, had set Israel apart to be this light, this kingdom of priests that was supposed to point the other nations back to him. But instead of living in a way that, that was distinct from the world, they became like the world. And so Moses in Deuteronomy 32 calls them this crooked and twisted generation. And here in our passage, Paul uses that phrase to describe the unbelieving world against which we as believers are called to live radical lives. And so Paul says here, using that phrase, do what Israel failed to do. Okay, learn from their mistakes. Do what they failed to do. We see this idea in the next phrase as well. Um, It says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That also is from Daniel 12, verse 3. Uh, The NIV translates that phrase like this. It says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky. Okay, stars in the sky. So uh, uh, the picture I want you to imagine is the night sky and you have the moon and you have the stars and you take those things away and there is no more light in the universe. And so in the same way Paul says we are supposed to shine in this world against the darkness. But not only should our lives dr- uh, should not only should our lives contrast against the world they should be illuminating that darkness, okay? And I think we see that in this phrase where Paul says holding fast to the word of life, okay? Holding fast to the word of life. That phrase there can speak of uh, both holding on to the word of life, like you're grasping tightly to the word of life, but it can also mean holding out the word of life. And I think here, Paul is actually trying to get at both of those ideas, you are holding fast, holding on, but you are also holding out the word of life. We'll talk about this more in our next point, but as believers, we are called to live in a way that is blameless and innocent and so prove ourselves to be unlike this crooked and, uh, and twisted generation, but we are also called to shine as lights. We are called to hold out the word of life to a world that needs to know the gospel. And so when you think about your complaining, does that motivate you to put off grumbling? That it is evangelistic. It is a means of preaching the gospel. The gospel and lost souls are at stake in our complaining. And when it comes to this in particular, when we choose to act differently when there is opportunity to grumble, I think there is this really unique opportunity to make the gospel known. That whether or not we do all things without grumbling or disputing, Either helps or hinders the advance of the gospel. When you think about it, complaining is universal currency, isn't it? It's like there's this uh, like instant camaraderie when we are around other people who are complaining about the same thing that we are. Uh, one example I think of is like jury duty. Okay, have you guys ever done jury duty? Like you're sitting in the waiting room, and no one is happy to be there. Okay, um, but when the person like announces you're you know like you're the lucky group, everyone's dismissed. Like everyone is super happy, you know, like high fiving each other, like yeah, you know, we're dismissed for jury duty. We all hate this civic duty. We're happy to get out of here. And there's this camaraderie because like everyone's complaining about jury duty, right? And that's what happens in this world. And so knowing that, knowing that complaining is this kind of thing that brings people together. I want want to just point out two big areas for us to be mindful of of our witness when it comes to complaining. Okay, first one is this, work. When I was working for a little bit after college, one of the cheapest, easiest conversation starters uh, with my coworkers was just to complain about how work was. And just think about what you're doing. Think about the message that you're sending when you do that. Right, think about what, what uh, worldview of work you're sending. Think about what you're saying about the gifts that God has given you when you complain about work. Right, think about what, uh, what message you're sending about what you live for when you complain about your work and when, when you so eagerly uh, look forward to the weekend. So that's the first thing, work. And I think some of you guys will experience that uh, very soon. But second thing is, uh, second area is, is people. Okay, what about grumbling and gossiping about other people? I think, unfortunately, uh, this probably happens way too often in the church and even among fellow believers. And I think uh, the bad thing is that we've gotten pretty good at it, right? We say things like, oh, I have this prayer request to share with you, right? Can can you pray for this certain person? Because they're like, you know, you start complaining about them. And these occasions for grumbling about others have become opportunities where we have spoken in a way to tear down rather than to build up. Where we have spoken poorly of others, uh, not to them, rather than moving towards them. Let me just say that uh, there will inevitably be occasions for grumbling against others. Right? There will be things to grumble about, perhaps even really legitimate things. After all, people are sinners. But you need to be more careful about guarding your heart and your mouth when it comes to grumbling against other people? I hope you realize that complaining is uh, extremely contagious. Right? And maybe you guys understand that. I've, uh, I've worked a couple of customer service jobs. I, wor- I worked at uh, the post office in Ackerman, for you guys who went to UCLA. Um, and then I worked at a coffee shop. And so uh, two customer service jobs and, and both these places were talking about people Uh, one, like who are already upset at the post office, right? No one walks in happy to the post office. And then we're talking about people who haven't had their coffee yet in the morning. And sometimes people will complain to me. And of course, you know, like doing customer service, you're supposed to be courteous, you're supposed to be nice and all that stuff, You, you try to help them out. But once they're gone, like what do I do? I turn around to my coworkers and I complain about them to my coworkers, right? It is Extremely and dangerously contagious. And the same thing happened with Moses and the Israelites. When people sinfully grumbled against Moses, Moses was was tempted, and he did. He grumbled about the people against God. And so, knowing all of that, ask yourself what message are you preaching with your complaining? What message are you preaching with your complaining? If our conversations with our unsafe friends are taken up by petty complaints about life's inconveniences, then we are acting like this world is all that really matters. When we complain about others, we are preaching a message that we are more superior, that, that we are more righteous than the people that we are slandering. Ask yourself, are you distracting others Are you helping others to see God's goodness and greatness? Are you helping or are you hindering? What if you stopped complaining and used all of those words to speak about Christ instead? Last point here, number three, how to combat complaining. Look at verse 16. Paul says, Holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I'm to be poured out as, a, out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, as we, as we think about this last point, how to fight complaining, uh, I think the question that we need to ask ourselves is not just how do I stop grumbling, like how do I stop saying these things, but how do we become the kinds of people who don't grumble? And two sub points for us here First, we combat complaining by holding fast to the word of God. Holding fast to the word of God. In John six sixty six, um, it says that many of Jesus' followers, there's this point in his ministry where many of them are turning back and they're actually walking away from, uh, from Jesus. And so Jesus, he turns to his disciples and he asks them, hey, do you guys want to go as well? Like, do you want to just walk away from me? And Peter responds by saying this, He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's what it means to hold fast to the word of life. You're not going to go anywhere else. You are staying yourself on the word of God. You're not going anywhere. Is that true of your life? If you recognize that you are prone to complaining, that you often have a difficult time having a joyful and a grateful attitude about things, how often are you going to God's word to correct your understanding, to correct your attitude? See, when we do live a life that is free of complaining, we are testifying to this watching world that you believe that God's word is steadier, it's more reliable, it's more sure, it's more accurate and correct, than your circumstances or your emotions. For example, when you choose to love others without grumbling, you are testifying that you are holding fast to the truth of John 15, 13, where it says that no, that, that greater love has no, uh, no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. When you choose to give generously of your resources without grumbling, you are testifying that you are holding fast to the truth of Acts twenty thirty five, where Jesus says it is more blessed to give than to receive. When you endure trials without grumbling, you are testifying that you are holding fast to the truth of 2 Corinthians 4:17, Romans 8:18 8, where it says that this light momentary affliction the the sufferings of this present time they are preparing us for this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that it's not even worth comparing the glory that is to be revealed to us. When you study without grumbling, you're testifying that you're holding fast to the truth of 1 Corinthians 10:31. Or it commands us that whether we eat or drink and whatever we do, do it all to the glory of God. Living a life that is free of complaining testifies to you holding fast to the word of God. So let me just give you a couple of, uh, practical applications here. One, uh, feel your faith with key passages from scripture that you can meditate on, that you can return to often, and that you know well. Fill your faith with key passages from Scripture that you can meditate on, that you can return to often, and that you know well. And I know Pastor Kim, he uses that phrase a lot. Um, and it's like just one of those things that you like you agree is a good idea, right? But maybe you never actually get around to doing it. Well, if you're not intentional about it, it's never going to get done. And if grumbling and disputing is at the heart of it, this functional forgetfulness of God's word and his promises then even more reason that we need to be equipped with Scripture, right? Even more reason that we need to be constantly meditating on it rather than everything that is going wrong in our lives. Second, here's just some questions to ask yourself when you feel like complaining. First, what do you deserve? Ask yourself, what do you deserve? And I think you guys know the answer to this already, right? As as sinners uh, who have offended a holy God, we deserve nothing but wrath. And Romans 6.23 makes that clear. It says that the wages of our sin is death. You know what wages means? It's something that you've earned, something that you've worked for. It's what you deserve. So as you think about that, why do you deserve this line to go faster? Why do you deserve this person to act a certain way? Why do you deserve your day to have a certain type of weather? Second, what do you actually need? Okay, what do you actually need? And I think this question is helpful um, because sometimes that first question is like just a trump card, right? And you like, you can't talk about anything um, and, and it's like totally not helpful. Uh, but this is a helpful question, I hope. What do you actually need? When you look at your life and when you look at what scripture says, what, like, what do you actually need to live? Ask yourself, do you really need more stuff? 1 Timothy 6 verse 8, Paul says, for if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content." Do you really need more time? Right? I know, like that's the, one of the big things. Like, man, I, if only I had more time. I just, I don't have time to do this. I don't have time to do this. Do you really need more time? Or has God given you exactly the amount of time that you need? Or what about this? Do you really need to know the future? This is what Jesus says in Matthew six thirty-four. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. S- sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you really need to be worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow? You can't control what's going to happen. So second, what do you actually need? Third, what have you been given? What have you been given? Do you recognize that God has richly provided us with everything to enjoy? First Timothy 6:17. that's what he says. He's given you friends, family, and education. He's allowed you in, to enjoy a nice meal every once in a while. The list goes on and on. You see, I think one of the reasons why we are so prone to complain, even with so many good gifts that God has showered us with, we are so prone to complain about them rather than to enjoy them is because we see them as stepping stones to get something for ourselves. Right? Rather than enjoy the relationships that God has put into our lives, we see people as a means to get us further along to give us something that we want. Rather than enjoy our education, and this is really hard for some of you, rather than to enjoy being in school, we see it as this necessary evil for being on the way to success and security. But I think what scripture teaches us, and you can read Ecclesiastes in particular, it teaches us to learn to enjoy God's gifts for what they are, right? Because they are far more than you deserve, Uh, David Gibson, he puts it like this, when we are not grateful for the little things, it is only a very short step to no longer being grateful for anything. When we do not enjoy and savor and love and laugh and delight in the little things, then we are headed toward losing our delight in anything. Now, of course, the greatest and most undeserved gift that we've been given is Jesus Christ himself. In him, we have life eternal and life abundant. But I want you to realize this, that gap between what you deserve, that first question, And then this third question, what you've been given, that gap between those two things, that's all grace. That's all grace. That is all unmerited favor. That is getting what you don't deserve. The more you realize the grace that you have given, the more that you are able to fight your complaining. Last point here. We combat complaining by putting others first. By putting others first. Verse 17 Paul says, "Even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me." I hope you guys have seen this uh, throughout our study so far in Philippians. But um, I think one of the big things that has really stood out to me is how this devotion to the gospel for Paul just totally transforms the way that he sees all of life. Right? He is so about the gospel. that that suffering for him is an occasion for joy. He is so about the gospel that he can say that dying is is gain. That whatever time he's been given here on earth is Christ. And that he can count others as more significant than himself. And I think that's what we see here in verse 17. Uh, Here, Paul describes two types of sacrifices in the Old Testament. You had the main sacrifice, which was the animal. uh, And there were a variety of other sacrifices on top of that. But the one that he mentions here is the drink sacrifice. And this was a more insignificant sacrifice that was poured on top to kind of finish it off. And so what Paul says is that even if I am to be poured out, and poured out is language of suffering and death, okay, you can read about that in 2 Timothy 4.16. Toward the end of his life, he says, I'm already being poured out. But Paul says, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering on top of the main offering of your faith, even if I'm just this small part of this offering of your life to God, Paul says, I am not only content, but I rejoice. There is nothing that I would be more happy to do, that I might in some way make your sacrifice more pleasing to God, and that God might receive more glory, that you might receive more joy. And how can he say that? Well, Philippians 2, that Christ was poured out for him. Isaiah three seven says that Jesus was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he, was, when he suffered, he did not threaten. He went to the cross. He took our place with joy rather than grumbling. And Paul knew that. Paul was changed by that. That Christ poured out his life for us, and so Paul, knowing that, can turn around, he can pour out his life for others with joy. Guys, I hope you've seen from our passage that Paul, here in these verses, is describing a new kind of person. A new kind of person, one who has been transformed by a radical kind of gospel, one that touches every dimension of your life, every crack and every crevice, including our complaining. The gospel transforms us from being grumblers at heart to people who can know gospel gratitude and gospel joy. So Beacon, I pray that that might be true of us as well. Let's pray together. Father, what a necessary passage for us to hear. God, We know that we are so prone to the sin of grumbling that we underestimate it, we are so guilty of it. Um, And we don't recognize, I think, oftentimes just what we're doing or that we are um, complaining against you, that we we are telling you that our rule, our kingdom is better than yours, that we are hindering our witness of the gospel to others. So, Father, we ask for your forgiveness. We ask for the power to change. Ask for transformation by the gospel. Pray for our small group times, that they would be beneficial, that they would serve us toward that end. God, we thank you and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.